to your God of all comfort. You give peace that passes understanding even when we see no way for there to be peace. Your God of all joy, you give joy when we can't see any way for there to be joy. And you're a God with whom nothing is impossible. Sometimes a way before us just seems like a boundless trek into the desert. We don't understand all of your ways. We certainly don't understand all your purposes except those you have revealed. But we pray for those who are in a world of hurt here this morning, whose hearts are in distress and whose hearts there are tears, and with whom there is confusion. You are God of all wisdom, and we pray that you, as we plot our ways, you may give us wisdom. And we pray that your spirit might speak this morning to all of our hearts, for there's a message before us that addresses every believing heart. And we pray that it may land as it needs to. We pray you may be glorified, your son might be magnified in you, and your word, our Father, may be powerful in the hearts and minds and effective in the hearts and minds of all your people. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, this is the beginning of our annual mission, not missions, should be mission conference. And uh, we have four messages that have more or less been assigned to me during this month. Today is the first, shedding the dead weight. The compass of the message will go a little further than that, but that's the core of it. One of the things that we all wrestle with in our flesh, in our humanity, for we are human and we are weak and we're often ignorant, pastor included, is uh, finding our way through the mist and through a lot of the confusion. And all of us at times, we get kind of discouraged and we get kind of beat down. The theme of this conference, this month-long conference, is preparing for Jesus. And the message I will give you today couldn't be more, more appropriate to that theme. And the days that we're living in certainly call for that, but I don't sense that in general, Christians in general are much on that path. But I hope if we're not there, we'll get there. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks to a generation, the early church, of Hebrew Christians, most relatively young, who were like many of you. They were struggling. Struggling with what? Well, they were not finding the world even their own cultural world, comfortable with them. And they were getting beat up on pretty badly. And they were expecting the coming of Jesus to arrive. And it hadn't. And so many of them were on the cusp of bailing. And uh, 
Whoever wrote Hebrews, we don't know for sure. doesn't matter. We don't need to get into that issue. Whoever wrote it was trying to pick up their spirits, just like many of you need your spirits picked up, and get them prepared for Jesus. He is coming. He is coming again. But it's not just getting prepared for him when he comes to be ready and to receive him not with shame but with joy, but is prepared to receive him daily, to give him space, to give him room to work in our lives. So he writes, and in the first two verses, he nails it. We're going to talk about that. Therefore, since we have a so great a cloud of witnesses, what's that mean, surrounding us, let us lay aside, you and me, every encumbrance and the sin. Yes, don't hear much about that these days, do you? The flat-out sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In the process, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame that went with the Roman cross. And he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We'll stop right there. I come to you this morning, as you come to me, I, uh, I want to be prepared for Jesus in every dimension. And I want to be able to cope with this discouragement problem that all of us from one time or another we're, to, we're beat down with. There's just all kinds of room for discouragement in this room. We all have it from time to time to one degree or another. We will never get past the time when we will be a discouragement-free zone. But what we can do by the grace of God following these instructions, we can learn to, like doubt to live above it. All of us are seized up once in a while by doubt. It's always a, but faith, living faith is deeper than doubt and it always comes out on top. I have discouragement myself a lot. I have discouragement this morning as I talk to you. But we can live above it so that it doesn't ruin us or just run us ragged. The first thing, so that I don't go too long with that, to remind you of from this passage is to refuse to make excuses. We've got to do self-counseling. I'm counseling you from the Word of God. It's our best counselor. These words are not used but this sentiment is there, full on. As we walk with Christ, as we prepare for him and prepare for his coming at two levels, he's coming to us always. Sometimes he doesn't find the access to us that he should have. And then he's coming physically. We've got to refuse to make excuses. Jim, I don't see that in that passage. Well, I'm going to show it to you. 
then we're going to kind of break it down. Therefore, since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, now where in the world do you see refuse to make excuses there? I'm going to show you. He has been talking in the previous chapter about all of this roster of great men and women of God. A roster that we know about from the Old Testament. He says, all these people that I'm writing you about, all of them knew God. And all of them in one way or another demonstrated a deep, a profound, a rigorous and an invincible faith in the living God. Many of them went through what we would call conventionally, they went through hell. In ways that you and I have never dreamed of. But they put their head down like a good NFL back and they went through everything, went through it. They would not give up their faith in God. When they got to the end of the trail, every one of them had this witness. They trusted God in everything. Now, some of us need to gather that up and do a little self-counseling. You got heaviness. Nobody's denying that. It may be crushing in a lot of ways. But you serve the living God, a God of the impossible, a God who knows everything and things you've never thought of, I've never thought of. He allows things for purposes that you and I can, but we trust him. We trust in him. We trust his word and we trust in the living God because he is God. These people walk through it all. You and I have not been anywhere near where a lot of these people have been. But they trusted in God and God honored that trust. And so they form, to use a metaphor, a great cloud in their white robes. (laughs) A great cloud of witnesses, testimonials for God. And they say to you, they say to this pastor, he is faithful. You know you have not always been. But he is faithful. He will do what he said he will do. He will fulfill every promise he gave us. If it is indeed a promise, he will do it. He will also act upon every warning. Trust him. Take him for granted. He is true. You and I are stumblers. But you get in the path, stay in the path, ask for his grace, ask for forgiveness when you need forgiveness, but trust in him. So this great cloud of witnesses are standing there for God. And they say to you and I, when we begin to doubt him, when we think of turning our back on him, that's a big mistake. He is faithful. Listen, every one of us, Lynn, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to Jim. Don't ever get the idea, as we sometimes do, that God's got to prove himself to you and me. He's not going to prove himself to anybody, and especially not you and me. Who are we, whipperdinks, to say, God, prove yourself? I'm waiting. 
Lord, I'm waiting. I've been in this mess for I'm waiting. No, God. God's saying he's waiting on you to get it right and to trust in him. Somebody says, blindly? No, not blindly. No, not at all. That great cloud of witnesses, <laughs> God's all kinds of witnesses speak for him. It's not blindly. Who's blind? It's us. Trust in him. Well, I don't know where this is going to turn out. It's not up to you to figure that out. It will turn out the way God promised. And in the end, a trump will sound. It'll resound throughout the whole earth. The heavens will be split. There will be the voice of the archangel. And there will appear, oh, to the horror of those who did not believe in him, did not trust in him. There will appear the Son of God, not in humiliation and all of his glory. I told you to trust in me. Well, here I am. And there we will be. So, no, that's not blind faith. If you've ever played sports, and many of you have, but even those who if you've had a coach or somebody, at, and uh, they have a habit of getting it right even when they appear to be doing something stupid. And those who have been around them will tell the younger players, don't argue. Do what he says. He has a habit of getting it right. Well, God's not just a habit. He always gets it right. So refuse to make excuses. Resist the temptation to blame God for our spiritual failures. Every mess I've ever made is on me. Every one of them. Not an exception. God never embarrasses faith. God will never let those blush who depend upon him. He never fails to come through, though oftentimes he doesn't save the bacon till it's crisp. Two, resist the temptation to blame circumstances for your spiritual failures. We're all, I think we all, most of us at least, we uh, have this habit, we're very skilled at it, blame shifting. Don't blame mama, don't blame daddy, don't blame your poverty, don't blame your disability or this or that or something else, the school system. Don't blame any of that. Oh, they make their contribution. We live in an evil world. And the world that we live in makes it much easier for us to fall on our face and to step in it. And we can do a little self-talk and tell ourselves that we've got all kinds of excuses for the mess that we're in, the messes we've made of our lives. And we've all made some messes along the way. Sometimes people make great messes. But God is sufficient to deal with those things. But don't blame your trying circumstances. Don't fold and throw in the towel. Listen to this. I've got to remind myself and I've got to remind people as a pastor time and time again. What have you got? I heard of somebody just a while back. Just hit me. I don't know how many, how many close relatives that they had lost 
in the space of a year or a year and a half. Just about devastated them. But the scripture says, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 10, 14. God will never allow you to be tested or tempted beyond what you can bear. If you've got it on your plate, you can eat it. Whatever comes your way is measured to the grace that God has or will give you. I can't handle it. I can't handle this. Been there. Thrown things. Hit my fist against the wall. Angry. Don't cop out and say, it's too much. Perhaps you have too, but in the course of my long life, I've seen those situations again and again. It just seems, oh God, that's too much. God is compassionate toward human weakness, your weakness. But he won't, if you please, give much comfort to, to persistent wimps and whining of people singing poor little old me. God, in effect, has hung up the phone on people like that. When we repent, he'll flip. But even the great prophet Jeremiah in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, was whining. And he told the Lord, it's just too much. Even my friends, my relatives, everybody, they've all turned against me. And the Lord told Jeremiah, oh, pipe down. You haven't even run with the horses yet. <laughs> Listen, folks, we got to have some self-talk. Remind ourselves, it's all in the spirit or the very words of Scripture. Most of our problems... I've had to tell myself this I don't know how many times in the last couple of months. You've heard me, some of you, because I've told you. These are first world problems. Just tell yourself that because it's true in most cases. Now, the second thing from which I got the title, not in these words, but the same thing. Boy, this is big, folks. This is big for every one of us who know the Lord. Shed the dead weight. Lay aside every encumbrance. What qualifies as a spiritual encumbrance is anything, however innocent in itself. I'm not talking about sin per se that impedes our spiritual progress. A lot of people in this room, a lot of people in every Christian room that I know of, part of their problem, part of their discouragement, part of this feeling that oh, things are just all messed up and they may be messed up in certain ways, are the dead weights as we try to run the life of faith. Anything that you and I allow to deflect us. This is a mission conference. Anything that we decide to allow to deflect us 
from the Christian mission. Duties and priorities translates to an encumbrance. It could be anything from a relationship to a hobby. Nothing wrong with hobbies. Talking to a gentleman here had a fascinating hobby. Nothing wrong with hobbies. But there are a lot of things there's nothing wrong with, but we get so invested in those things, an RV, a boat, a car, or home, to a recre- to recreation, all invested in those things, that they're just a distraction. They're in a the way. Any coach would come along if we're okay, would say, stop that. Stop that. Knock it off. We've got a bigger project going on here. When we allow an obvious encumbrance to have its way with us and substitute our agenda for Christ, for that, we open the door to thieves and robbers to ransack our time, our energies, and the resources that rightly belong to Christ. Now I'll let you rummage through that. Things that aren't in themselves evil, aren't in themselves sin, but they take you captive. You don't have time for the things of God. You don't have time to pray. You don't have time to read your Bible. Oh, you would, but you don't. It deflects you. You don't have time to be a witness. Some of us need perhaps to adopt a no-return strategy. I've told this story a lot. My grandson, John Dodson, over there he sits. John, uh, grandson, my son-in-law. Well, you see, I can't get things straight anymore. That's what you are. You're my son-in-law, aren't you? Well, John, as he was growing up, he's in the Hall of Fame at Marshall University for his track feats. But I asked him one time when he started dating my daughter, Christy. I was just father-in-law trying to find out about son-in-law. I asked him what he majored in at Marshall. I mean, he went there to be an athlete. And uh, he said, major in philosophy, minor in math. I thought he might have flipped that, seemed more practical to me. So I, I said, well, of course, I would be interested in the philosophy aspect was, but why did, just why, why did you major? I loved his answer, why he decided to major in philosophy. This is what you mean, keeping on task, getting in the mission, even at that age. He said, well, I wanted a major that when I got into ministry and started getting all beat up, I didn't have any place to go back to. <laughs> I couldn't go be a plumber. I couldn't go be an engineer. I couldn't go. I had to stick with the stuff and stay on mission. I like that. I like that. We as believers have to know what our mission is. We're not here on this earth just to go to, it's good. God says, don't forsake the gathering. of. But that's not what it's all about. We are here. We've got a mission in this earth. We must, all of us, get invested in it. 
watch for those bridges of escape from hardship. Don't have time to tell you the whole story, but Julius Caesar, one time, the Helvidia, Switzerland, he, uh, he conquered it. This is a very short version of the story. He conquered it. But you know one way he conquered it? When he went in, he burned all the bridges. They didn't know what they were getting into, so his men couldn't escape. They had to finish the job, burnt the bridges behind them. It's a good metaphor. There are things you and I can't burn a bridge. We got to take care of our kids. We got to feed our families. We've, there are things we, we've got to do. We know what those things are. But there are just a lot of other things that are disposables. We don't have to do those things. We don't have to get ourselves so in, invested in that. You know, we're raising our kids. It's a, you know, we've got to give the kids something to do besides sit around the house and read Bible story books. I mean, they got to have a social life. Let's get reasonable. It both breaks my heart and makes me mad when I drive home talking about getting rid of the encumbrances. I don't care what the weather, I don't care what day, Sunday nights included. I go up by West Westlake High School, turn a corner, and there's great big, they got more fields up there than a farmer. And there they are, lights burning, $5 every 30 seconds, I guess. There they are, public money going... And our kids, where are our kids? What do we try? Athletics, athletics, athletics. Get real. Most of them aren't any good anyway. <laughs> Get real. It's a ridiculously low percentage of those kids that are ever going to get a scholarship. A ridiculously low percentage. I was shocked myself. They aren't that good. I had a guy go out of here who's never been back. Nice guy. Really liked him and his wife. Hadn't seen him around all summer. He went out the door a little, a little bit embarrassed. Hi, Jim. I said, hi, so-and-so. said, I haven't seen you in a while. Well, Pastor, you know how it is. It's summertime and these kids with softball. Baseball. His kids were 14 and about this high. I'm exaggerating. And they weren't Pee Wee Reese. You don't know that name, but I'm old enough to know it. Little guys. They weren't in church. They weren't here. Training them up in a dead weight proposition. Get your heads on. What's important? I'll tell you. Say, well, Jim, I don't know if you faced it. Listen, my dad faced it. I was an athlete. Obviously, I wasn't the greatest. 
thought I was a pretty good one at my level. And uh, my dad had a contract offer from the New York Yankees. That's back when the Yankees were the Yankees. Those great names. And they knew ball players. And he had quite a reputation. He didn't... Uh, he didn't take the contract because he had a contract with a coal company playing for their baseball team. He was well known in his day. But he didn't take it because he had some kids, to, a kid coming, me. Go back and look at those Yankees in 1937. He turned that down. Now, that was not to go to the major league team. He had had to work his way up, but they thought a lot of him. So when Jimmy comes along and Jimmy wants to play sports and Jimmy's all invested in sports, it wasn't Dad's protest, but he he wanted to put a stopper on pride. Number two, he wanted to put a get my value straight. And he wasn't even at most of the games. But he was in my ear about the things that were important. Watch these things that are encumbrances. Your RV can be your encumbrance. Your second home can be your RV. Well, you pay $900,000 for that thing, right? What have you got to do with it? During the week, you can't. You've got a job, right? So what do you what do you got to do on the weekend? Go run in the RV. And every one of those people look the same. You ever going down the road? <laughs> they all look like they're clones. Every one of them. <laughs> or it can be that second home. It can be all that stuff. There's nothing wrong with them in themselves. But when they divert you from what you're supposed to be and do, there is something wrong. And you get discouraged. You get down. You don't quite know why it is because you're not on mission. Well, enough about that or I'll be fired immediately after the service. (laughs) Number three, keep the rules. Where's keep the rules? And lay aside the sin that does so easily beset us. The author's talking about those things which we do or we don't do, which are contrary to the moral character and stated will of God or our conscience. We know the way. We make a choice to do we make a choice to do something else. It's not good. And then we wonder had a family come in oh two or three years ago. Nice family. I'm not trying to beat up on them is so typical. Sat down in my office. I think maybe they're expecting to get a reaction from me. They said, Pastor, we're leaving. I said, well, why is that? Well, we just feel stagnant. Feel like we need to go somewhere else. I didn't react to it. I said, well, thank you for your service. We appreciated having you here. But I know exactly why. I would tell you, but I can't. I don't want to publicly identify But I saw it coming. I told them that. I did see that coming. It's all on them. 
because of sin. I don't mean some scandalous sin out there, but they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing as believers. What God had told them to do. Well, after a while, that works you down. You're discouraged. You don't feel, well, the problem is somebody else's. Instead of just looking at themselves and saying, we've been sinning. This is on our conscience. Look, there are a lot of pastors and there are a lot of people out there. <coughs> just to give you examples, what are they into? Surveys. They're into pornography. Now, if you're in this church and you're a man, or these days it can even be women, and you're into that kind of crap, and that's what it is. Don't wonder about where is God. Don't wonder about how come I don't feel blessed. Don't wonder about how come I don't feel rich in the Lord. How come I'm not feeling the joy? How come I'm discouraged? There's your answer. Uh, offload that stuff. It's sin. Listen, I'm not trying to beat you down. You can repent. Start there. And you will be forgiven. Repent. The word means to turn it around and go the other way. But as long as you walk before God and you deliberately sin and do what he's told you not to, just walk in disobedience. You're not going to feel happy. You're not going to feel peaceful. You're not going to feel joy. And you're not going to feel motivated to get up and get with it. And anything you substitute... And don't think if you go to a church where they're wild and flooring their hands, got sound and light going, all that, don't think that's going to help anything. So it helps us compete with confidence. It keeps us out of the penalty box. Do you hear what I said? Keeps us out of the penalty box. <coughs> the rest of this chapter will teach us Excuse me, folks. It's like I told Elsie the other day. Sometime we've got to find time to die. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But it'll keep us out of the penalty box. If you're just walking around and you're doing what you know is wrong, you're asking for God's discipline. And it may be light, it may be heavy, depending on how stubborn you are. Number four, running right along here. We've got to show some grit. Let us run. We're in a race. Not a dash, but it's a marathon. Let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to meet us, right? Well, let's prepare for him and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. Remember, it's not new to you. The Christian life's not a dash. It's a distance race. Thank you, Betty, Becky. Just remember, I've told you guys before, this better be strong stuff. <laughs> I read about a guy, I know him. He used to be in this church years, years ago. He lives now in Arizona. He runs these ultra races, 222 miles. Well, he hadn't run anything in about six months. Just saw this yesterday. So he said he went out running. He said, 
Well, I walked more than I ran. But he says, I'm working up to it, and I'm going to commit to another one of those races. That's the way we've got to run the Christian life. As long as you live, as long as you have breath, as long as you have strength, as long as you have your mind, use it in the name of God for Christ. Runners hit some walls. Believe me, I do. You develop a tolerance for pain, a tolerance for persecution, for humiliation, and for pain in general. Jesus says, he who does not take up his cross, yeah, the Christian life is a lot of cross-bearing. Take up your cross and bear it is not worthy of me, Matthew 10, 38. It's getting tougher and tougher to be a Christian. What did I say last week? Be what you're supposed to be. Do what you're supposed to do. Go where you're supposed to go. There aren't as many safe places for Christians today. So we're going to get hammered some. We're going to be embarrassed some. We're going to be humiliated some. It's no longer a comfortable place in this country to be a radicalized Christian. In many parts of the world, it's not even a safe place. Number five, preparing for Jesus. Sell out. Sell out. And fix your eye on Jesus as the model for your race of faith. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of what it means to walk with him. Who for, and I paraphrase, for the promise of joy that was set before him endured the cross. Let that be your model. Let him be your model. Despising the shame of the cross and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What did Jesus do? Thank you, David. I need help. You can see that. Well, we're okay. Jesus concentrated on his future glory. That's what we've got to do. Listen, when you've lived as long as I have, you see the end. That's a good thing. I'm glad I've come to that place. Oh, how it clarifies things. It clarifies things. You know, no guilt trips here. If you go to the mall, it's fine. It's fine. I don't even want to go to the mall anymore. I mean, I go to Costco. I don't even want to go to Costco anymore. I don't want to get in the crowd. don't want to get in the mix. I don't want to go get gas anymore, but I got to do it. I mean, I'm getting the point. I don't even want to go out to eat. You know, you know why? I am bored. This world bores me more day after day, day after day, and I'm not going to spend my life trying to find out a way to keep from getting bored. I just want to concentrate on what God has given me to do and let the rest go you know where. Let's stick with our knitting. Finally, get accustomed as the text goes on to some rigorous spiritual training. That's not in the parameters of the text I cited. Consider him as endured so much hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose part. Oh, I can't take it anymore. can't take it anymore. You've not resisted the point of shedding blood. How many of you here in this room have shed blood literally for the Lord Jesus Christ? Oops. Talking about first world problems, aren't we? 
How many of you have shed blood striving against sin? The opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So, as we wrap this up, don't be a snowflake in the estimate of your hard times. And I speak to myself because sometimes I'm just like other people all the time. And there are days and there are hours when I'm a, I'm a snowflake. And uh, there are times just like I did the other day. Aussie came in. I don't even know what it was about. I had so many hassles, this, that, and the other. My new glasses, I just threw them across the room. I made a statement, this too? I don't want to hear about it. Today I'm done with it. You have times like that? I do. But we're being snowflakes, self-talk. Let's tell ourselves that. Think of what Jesus went through. Think of what the apostles went through. Think what the Christian church has gone through. First world problems are not the end of the world. The Lord is coming soon. Remember that. And don't forget God's purpose in our lives. He's doing what he does because he loves us. He's doing what he does because he knows us. I don't know lots of times. Somebody says, I just try to find God's purpose. Well, good for you. I hope you find it. I don't know what the heck it is other than in general. I don't know what God is doing because he lets this in. He hasn't told me and he hasn't told you. Get in line and go along with it. Pray for grace. And bring his word and use it for self-talk. So buck up and be glad. It's all a means of moral purification. Well, I don't know whether that encourages you or discourages you. I don't know which it is, but I'm telling you, it's biblical. It's right. I tell people, somebody says, Jim, you're a pessimist. No, I'm the furthest thing from a pessimist. You can take that. But I'll tell you one thing I am. I'm a realist. I'm a biblical realist. For example, somebody comes, just pick a day. Somebody comes summer or winter. They said, Jim, I've never been to the Oregon coast. I'd like to go. Oh, and the girls get so mad at me. I say, well, I'll take you, but the weather's probably going to be bad. <laughs> oh, Jimmy. Jimmy, you're always such a pessimist. No, am I right? I am right. And I don't want them to go down and get disappointed. So I'm telling them the truth. Right now. Tell the truth. And be a realist. That doesn't mean you're a pessimist, but sometimes the reality is negative. That's the way it is, so tell the truth. Anyway, that's the way it is in life. And we will never, we will never live on the level until we're honest with ourselves, we're honest with God, and we play by the rules. And submit to the Spirit of God as He gives us some rigorous spiritual training. We're all in the midst of that, pastor included. And we should be thankful for it. 
all God's doings in our lives are good, even if they don't seem good at the moment. And we're all going to die. You're dying as you're sitting there. Your rose is no longer bright. Some of you, your rose is still in full bloom. But it's no longer, get used to it. Get ready for it, for the return of Jesus. Prepare for his coming. Let that be the story of your life, preparing to meet Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would work in our lives and bring us to a point where we're honest about life. We're honest with ourselves and we're totally committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Earlier when Pastor Jim was saying that he gets called a pessimist, but he's just a realist, my my wife leaned over to me. She whispers in my ear. She's like, that's what pessimists say. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I have here a piece of paper. Because this does not require the internet. And uh, I intended to share with you guys a, a passage of scripture earlier. But it's just as good after that message as it is before. Um, go 